Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. How do you escape one of the world's most infamous cults? Filmmaker Bexy Cameron was born and raised in the Children of God, and she joined me to tell me how she got out. It's a story of her new book, Cult Following. Please note, this episode is not suitable for kids and contains references to both physical and emotional abuse. Bexy, you're a globe-trotting filmmaker by trade, covering some of the most important stories of our time. But your new book, Cult Following, turns inward. It's a stark and frequently disturbing account of your upbringing as a member of the Children of God, a fundamentalist Christian-inspired cult. Why did you decide it was the right time to set your account down? It must have been more harrowing revisiting your past than most of us can imagine. Oh, that's a really good question. I think to begin with, I didn't want to revisit my past at all. In fact, I was trying to do everything that I could to hide from it. I was, uh, I was doing everything I could to be as far away as I possibly could from that kid who grew up in that cult. So I did everything. I changed my hair. I changed my accent, as you can hear. I had an American one growing up, changed my name. I was working in the creative industries and I really was actually just hiding from the fact that I'd had this, you know, this completely different life, this life that when I look back at it, and especially at that time, it felt like a movie I'd seen rather than something I'd experienced. But unfortunately for me, that kind of started to catch up with me and it started to rear its head in so many different ways. And I knew that I needed to process it, but I didn't really know how. And that really was the kind of beginning of this journey. It was less of a case of wanting to go back and more of a case of not really having any choice to go back. There were so many unanswered questions from my past that I needed to explore, even though I particularly didn't really want to. In the book, there is this incredible man who I met when I was a child who asked me this question, which was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I met him again as an adult. And that was the beginning of my process when he said to me when I was an adult, you've had this really unusual experience, this perspective that some of us will never, ever have. And what are you going to do with it? And that really was the the second question he asked me that really started me on this trajectory of thinking, what am I going to do with it? What am I going to do with the fact that I was raised in this pretty damaging, deviant group? And how am I going to make something of it, even if it's just for myself? Um, And that was kind of the beginning of my exploration, not only into my past and the group that I was raised in, but into joining 10 more cults, which I know sounds pretty ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous even for me having done it. But yeah, that was kind of the beginning point for me. The man, your guardian, is Guardian journalist Walter Schwartz. Yes. Can you tell us about how you came to encounter him as as a child and the role that he played in in your subsequent life? Absolutely. So the Children of God, just to give you a little bit of context, they were a group that started in 1968. They were part of that massive Jesus revolution, the hippie movement that started in the, in the United States. They were radical and revolutionary. And then somewhere along the way, quite quickly, they went from being about the end of the world coming to becoming a really deviant, damaging group that exploited the women and the children. David Berg, who was the leader of the group, went from being a prophet to becoming a predator. And 
this manifested itself in so many different ways for us. But one of the big ways for me was I was raised as what's known as the, the one of the chosen ones, which sounds really grand and it sounds really exciting to be a chosen one. But how that actually played out for us was we didn't have school, we didn't have television, we didn't have music. We were completely separate from the world. We were not allowed to be influenced by anything other than David Berg's preachings himself so in this bubble is how we were raised and what's interesting for me is to think that at certain points in my childhood I was raised in the UK but I really had no experience of of being here I was in the countryside in places like Warwickshire and outside of Birmingham and actually I have no understanding of those places whatsoever because I was in this compound that's on the countryside but is somewhere something completely separate and so we were in hiding because of the beliefs of David Berg. Um, I mean, I won't go into them in great detail unless you want me to. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, let's, you do? Let's talk about them in detail. Who okay. was David Berg and what did he believe? I mean, David Berg was a real piece of work. <laughs> um, he was the son of a traveling evangelist and his mother was massive evangelist in in the united states uh she would have those huge revivals you know the ones that they throw in kind of like you can imagine in like backwater tennessee the big white tents spitting sawdust on the ground and everyone's singing sweaty people arms in the air like massive revivals and she was on a pulpit preaching and i can imagine that he was growing up looking at her thinking wow this is somebody i want to to literally someone on a pedestal that he he wanted to emulate and he started to um in 1968 the story that we heard as children was very much a magical story the beginning of our group it was on huntington beach sandy plains the hippies were there the misfits were all coming to this part of california and david berg was amongst them these dropouts they were already dropping out from the system, as they called it. They were already leaving their families, were now being given a new purpose, a new way of life. So really, they were already ripe for change, if you think about it. If you think about what the time was like back then, Vietnam, nuclear war, you know, what was happening with Nixon, what was happening on a, just on a revolutionary scale. There were demonstrations in the street, race war, like just everything was happening. It was counterculture was bubbling over and he capitalized on that capitalized on these young people not knowing what they wanted to do with their lives and being ready for change and he gave them what they thought was the answer and I can also imagine at that time being a young person thinking maybe the world is going to end I mean if you look at what was going on then it didn't seem like the way that things were I mean obviously I wasn't around but from what I understand it didn't seem like this was a sustainable way to be and also there was all things like LSD coming through America and opening people's minds and people wanted to love their neighbor rather than bomb other nations. So it was this really kind of cataclysmic time, an exciting time. And he was there on the beach preaching that the end of the world was coming. And he was saying he wanted to start a revolution for Jesus. And I can almost imagine if I was young and at that point getting swept up in that, because it does sound quite enticing in some ways that, you know, to have this ideological kind of thing or person to follow. But um, what's interesting to me is how quickly it went from that to becoming a really damaging, really damaging group. I mean, that was 1968. By 1973, he was already had this, he already had this, um, I hate to call it ideology or belief or even theory because it's just the ravings of a, of a madman. But he came up with this idea called flirty fishing. 
or hookers for Jesus. I'm sure you can get the picture. But essentially, it was all the mums were sent out to prostitute themselves in the name of Jesus. You would show God's love through sex and you would get paid for it, which is just classic (laughs) exploitation and done in this damaging way of people thinking that they have agency within it, which I'm sure we could talk about till the cows come home. But it happened really quickly. How do you go from saying that the end of the world is coming and let's start a revolution to all of a sudden, let's send out the mums to be prostitutes in nightclubs and and you know support the communes? And obviously thinking about the echelons within this cult of where the money goes, all of a sudden it's not even just about ideology or religion. It becomes about the lower tiers giving money to the upper tiers. And all of a sudden you start to think, is it a massive money-making scheme so there's all of that that happened. And then even more damaging than that was he came up with this idea, which was child bride, which was God's only law is love. So whatever you do, as long as it's done in love, then it's fine. And he essentially created what I would call handbooks of how to sexually abuse children as part of the works that he, he put together. So this group became very deviant very quickly. And it was huge as well. It wasn't like one of those tiny little groups just in the middle of podunk nowhere. It was in over 100 countries by the um, mid-70s. It had over 10,000 people. It went on to have nearly 20,000 people towards the 80s. And yeah, and all of these people that were blindly following this man who changed with the wind. I mean, it's interesting for me because obviously I didn't join the group. So I talk about this time period of the 70s and I can romanticize about what it must have been like and counterculture and all of those things. But I didn't have that experience. I was, a, I was born into this group. I didn't see the revolution. I didn't see, you know, the Vietnam War. I didn't see the flower power demonstrations. All I saw was um, being born into a group where I was told, well, you're the chosen ones. You're completely separate. Do what we say. There's no freedom of thought even, no freedom to say what you want. Everything was done by scripture. It's a clumsy kind of, it's always clumsy to compare things to another piece of like writing or literature or whatever, but The Handmaid's Tale is the closest thing that I could ever say if you want to know what it feels like to be a child. In- I thought of it multiple times when I was reading the book. Really? That's interesting. That's interesting that you got that as well. But like to be a child within that group, that is exactly how it felt, always being watched never being able to say anything. The fact that the even there's one line in it that she says that, you know, a, a, an open door doesn't mean it's not locked or something like that, where it's like we weren't raised in compounds with barbed wire, but we were raised in a separate community where everything, we had spies around us all the time. We had our own vernacular. Everything was codified. Like policemen aren't called policemen, they're called Romans. Somebody that used to be uh, one of us but now has left is called a backslider. You know, we had words for everything. We had sheep, we had goats, we had literally everything, wolves in sheep's clothing, which is a common one, but everything had this codification around it. Even when somebody who was in the group would come to the door, you would always ring three times and that's how you would let us know that it was one of us. And if it was one ring at the door, The children would cry, one ring, one ring, and everyone would run and they would hide because we knew it was a stranger. And if it was the police or a journalist at the door, because we were outlawed in so many countries as we should have been, because if you think about it, you shouldn't be, you know, doing all the things that David Berger was coming up with, we would flee. 
we would literally up sticks and run. We had a flea bag that had all of your essentials in it and we had it packed at all times and you would grab it and you would get in the van and you would run. And there were times where we would spend up to six months like living on a campsite, which actually were some of the happiest times of my childhood. The times on the run were the times that I loved because I was like, oh my God, like anything. But I think when you're a, ch- a child in those kind of controlled environments, any kind of catastrophe is exciting. You don't fear it. You crave it. You're like, wow, something might happen that will change everything. And you're just aching for something to happen. So yeah, we would run and then. I didn't know this at the time, but obviously now through research and through being a part of this world, all of the media uproar against cults started. And obviously that started probably with the satanic panic and then went on to cults in general. And then we had the solar temple that happened, you know, whether you want to say 58 people committed suicide or whether they were murdered, whatever the conspiracy theory might be, there was 58 deaths. Then there was Waco. And again, the conspiracy theories around that, it was still more deaths than was ever than ever should have been and then the panic around cults became massive and you know we realized or the group realized that it's not sustainable to keep running think about the amount of people that we had in communes all over the world the amount of splinter cells that we had everywhere we couldn't just keep going on the run you can't keep that's not sustainable so they decided that we were going to basically come out so we set up one home that was called the media home and they found the most normal looking and sounding family, which happened to be mine. (laughs) My parents had British accents and also my mum and dad were quite intelligent people. They had joined the cult when they were both studying medicine, which is another misconception I think that people have about people who join cults that we think they're, you know, um, misfits or on the you know, some sort of spectrum or they're vulnerable or they're this. And, you know, there's there's many reasons for it. But actually, the majority of people that join cults are actually middle class and educated and are looking for something else and looking for a different type of structure from the one that they've been in. Why did your parents join? Who are they and why did they join? (laughs) You mentioned that they were studying medicine. Yes. In a psychiatric hospital. Yes. Brilliant story. Isn't it just? So my parents were quite ordinary, bafflingly ordinary, really. My dad was from uh, Margate, Ramsgate area. My mum was from Derbyshire. And my mum was like a straight A student, valedictorian. You know, she was a fencer, champion walker, like apple of her parents' eye. She was very, very like just top of her class for everything. She was a vegan, which wasn't even really a thing back in those days. She was proper good girl material. And my dad was almost the opposite. He was a bit of a Lothario. He started drinking at 12. He, um, you know, had a, 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 I think he had his first kid when he was 15. Just, you know, a, a bit of a wild, wild boy, essentially. And they met in university. And they actually went out on a date. And my mum, like, thought that he, he was bit of a piece of work which it turns out he is but they remained friends ish and yeah she was starting to be a um psychologist and my dad was starting to be a psychiatric nurse and people often say when i met on the psychiatric ward that they were you know in under the care of the hospital but um maybe they should have been but they weren't and um it's really strange when i think about their their origin story because it, it was just tiny things could have happened that would have meant that this would have never happened that this whole, this whole adventure, this life 
this world that I've just explained to you of my world wouldn't have happened. So my dad went down to London because a friend of his had borrowed a toolbox, something so simple. And he went back to get it. But this person had joined a cult with that toolbox. And when he went to get it back, he never came back. And my mom and dad weren't even like dating or anything. And she was still in uni. And she'd heard the whispers amongst the halls that my dad had been sucked into an evil cult. My mom went to rescue him. That was her mission. It wasn't to join. It was to save this guy that she thought was a bit of a dum-dum that she was going to go and rescue him and bring him back. And um, she decided within five hours to, to join, which sounds like I, I, can't, I can't wrap my head around it, even now. Like, I know her. I know what she's been through. I know her life before. I've pieced together it all. I've tried to come at this from a place of empathy, everything. And I still find that shocking that she decided within five hours to give up her parents, her friends, her life, her trajectory, her dreams, everything that she wanted and join this group. And as that decision that she made in five hours, she sticks by to this very day. She is still in it. She raised 12 children inside of this group from that one decision, from that one day. Isn't that bananas to think that? And then, of course, the hilarious, if you want to say, I mean, it's, it's not really hilarious, it's quite dark, but um, my dad did a prophecy where he prophesied, I think, within about the day one or day two of being in, inside this cult, that if my mum's new reborn name was changed to Rachel, that they should be married. Of course, he didn't tell anyone about this prophecy until after she came in having the new name Rachel, which I think is an extremely clever way to get married to someone who's completely out of your league. I was like, well done. But yeah, I mean, that kind of shows you a bit about my dad's more deviant side, probably. <laughs> Tell us about your brothers and sisters and how you were raised as a family unit. Because one of the biggest um, aspects of the cult's ideology is breaking down those familial bonds. You've really hit the nail on the head by saying that the cult breaks down family. Because actually, that's not something that's unusual to, to groups in general. So basically, there is no room for the family unit within a cult because the cult is the family unit. They can't have bonds that are stronger than the group. So even husband and wife bonds cannot be stronger than the belief in or the bond with the group. That is first and foremost. So they did everything to kind of to split up families, whether it was like physically separate you or only have a certain amount of time that you could spend with your parents. So like one hour in a day, you could speak, you could see and speak to your parents. Other than that, it was within the group. There were so many things they did to break down that bond. And even to the point where parents aren't allowed to make decisions about their own kids, they have to refer back to the group. And what that does, if you think about it, is it hands over the responsibility of your children to an entity, to a collective mind. And if that collective mind is controlled by the channel to God, which is what they believed him to be, aka a deviant, predatory paedophile, which is how I would look at him, then you can imagine what happens to the children within this structure. Because now mommy and daddy aren't looking out for you. Mommy and daddy are referring to the group and what the group's laws are. So really, I think that is where one of the most dangerous parts for me 
of being an occult can rely? Who is taking responsibility for the children? What is the collective mind saying? And who's in charge of that collective mind? Because the collective mind then sways with the leader's every whim. And as you well know, David Berg was a real piece of work. I'm not swearing because, you know, this is a very highbrow <laughs> conversation we're having. But he was a real piece of work. And I absolutely do not recommend ever looking into any of the stuff that he preached because a few people who left the group took all of the literature that he ever created and everything exists online. So for someone like me, that is quite handy because the stuff that he wrote and the stuff that he preached is so mind-bendingly dangerous, bizarre, evil, that I can't even really believe it happened and there it is for me in black and white so as far as it being a case of like trying to validate the experience that it actually happened for me it's quite handy but I wouldn't ever recommend looking up any of it you didn't even know what he looked like as a child I didn't know what he looked like until he died yeah so this is the really weird thing it's like so uh, the literature that they wrote all of the stuff that they had in it including these extraordinarily horrific manuals for how to abuse children called the Davidito books all of the adults the photographs of them had cartoon faces on I mean that is really weird isn't it to think about that like from a child's perspective the kids in the photographs are all normal photos and then every adult to keep their anonymity they've drawn a cartoon smiling face on it I mean it feels like some really twisted kind of artist has gone to work on that so David Berg had these um and we didn't even know his name is David Berg because that's his real name he called himself the king uh papa granddad grandpa father David those are all the things that we had to call him and um so I thought that he looked like a uh, sometimes he was they drew him as a lion sometimes they drew him as like a really handsome old man with long flowing hair and a beard and like kind of like a really buff Santa you know usually with his top off and big muscles and all this kind of stuff like you know wild drawings like that and then the day that he died my mom there was like a, a newspaper kind of um not rebuttal what's the word a press release going out that my parents had pulled together the day that he died and I saw a photograph of him for the first time and I was like maybe I was 13 or something like that I can't remember how old but I remember looking at it and thinking is this who we follow I listen to this man every single day his preachings every day and this is and he was this and you'll see if you look at a photograph of him this sunken eyed kind of like the smile on his face doesn't emit anything to me other than a predatory nature you know sunken in eyes hair receding hair just completely not what I thought he would be I mean he looks like what he was which was an utter creep and when you when I saw it like as a as a kind of teenager I was like is this who we follow and I think there's something interesting around the mystery that a lot of cult leaders like to put around themselves to separate who they are as a real person, separate the man from the myth that they're trying to put out there. He wanted us to believe that he was this prophet and this incredible, like almost deity. And in reality, he was a, a real shriveled creep with a drinking problem. And I'm sure that if my parents were actually face to face with him, would they have followed him? I don't know. I'd like to think not. But they never met him. Isn't that weird? Hello, it's Vass here. 
One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What was a typical day like for you? Mm. Well... It's interesting for me to think of a typical day because I think, you know, when people say there's no such thing as a typical day in a cult, there really is because everything runs like clockwork. You have a hundred people living in a house together. It is timed to the second and there is zero space for goofing off, mucking around, chatting, nothing. And this is something, again, that's the formula within multiple groups, because if you are always busy, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, Idle hands of the devil's workshop and all that kind of stuff. If you are always busy and you are always exhausted, you are much less likely to start thinking, what am I doing here? What is my purpose here? What is actually going on? You don't even have time to question what's being told to you because you are constantly being kept busy. I had that when I, because one of the groups I stayed with was the 12 tribes and it was exactly the same up at like quarter to six and you worked until 11 at night. There was no way to do anything other than what you were being told to do. It's a really good way to keep people in line. So a typical day for us as kids, we were the, we were the workforce. We were the ones that held those communes together. I was nine years old when I was running a nursery. I was putting babies to sleep, having them through the night, doing the night feeds with bottles, potty training them from a really like, like I had, I had like six, seven babies with me and my sister running a nursery at nine. I ran a kitchen age 10. I was cooking for a hundred people twice a day. I didn't have to do one of the meals, but I had to plan the meals. I had to like, like literally everything like as a 10 year old. And listen, I was completely capable of doing it. I did it because kids are pretty, you know, you put them in situations like that. It's like most children in like in, in other parts of the world start work at a really young age, absolutely capable of doing it. It doesn't mean it necessarily makes for a great childhood, but we were just run like clockwork, whether it was a morning ritual, whether it was um, what they call devotions. So we had JJT, which is Jesus job time. Everything had some sort of an acronym that went with it. But yeah, it was basically work, work, work 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 that was all it was and then obviously when you get to the darker times which was when the teen camp started that was when things were a little bit different yeah and that was kind of when as as you know because you will have read the book that was when there was a little bit of rebellion happening within the children of god some of the kids started growing up and being teenagers and kind of rebelling as you would you know you start to think what are we what is happening here And uh, so instead of speaking to the kids and asking what they needed, they decided instead to clamp down. So they created um, these teen camps. Let's talk about those. Because you were not considered to be a good, compliant, 
uh, I dare say Christian teenager. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they renamed me Rebecca the Deceiver, so I think that gives you a bit of an idea of what they thought. Oh, should, have, you should have used that on the dust jacket of the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, please don't. Not the old labels. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it all kind of started quite young for me, to be honest with you. I wasn't really a teenager when this all happened, but I was considered to be rebellious enough that they put me in a teen camp. So I was nine when I had my exorcism and that's when they renamed me Rebecca the Deceiver, which I sometimes laugh about it, but obviously at the time it was pretty devastating and uh, I got caught lying and I, yeah, I, I did used to talk back and all of those things that kids do. And essentially I got put into a teen camp and I was 10 years old at this point. And um, they, their idea essentially, and this is something I, when I, when I confronted my dad, which again, you will have read it's in the book. I asked him, you know, what about the teen camps? And he said, they started these teen camps in the Philippines and Japan. And we were told that what they were doing had worked. And what they were doing, working, meant they were trying to make us better, more compliant, end-time soldiers by any and all means possible. And the any and all means was things like um, they were isolating kids. There was like a few of the girls, which you'll read about, were isolated for one of them was I think three months she was kept in isolation she would have been about 14 years old you had public beatings that happened almost daily it was really easy to get like a public beating and I think as well like you have to remember if you are a group that features a certain type of idea you're going to attract a certain type of person right so if you're a group that's you know into abusing children who are you going to attract so I think a lot of the people that were in this group when when they were given this opportunity to um, create these these teen homes or teen camps it really just let them it was you know it just let them behave in whatever ways they wanted to so they really exploited this this (laughs) I'm using words like opportunity because it's difficult to kind of explain it without I don't want to over dramatize it I don't want to like use words that like feel Oh, you know, what it's it's hard to explain, but they were camps and we had people within them who really enjoyed the violence against children. It wasn't like they were, you know, sad to be there. It was it was it, it felt to us like this was a good thing for them. And so, yeah, kids were put in isolation. Kids were publicly beaten. I was put on a thing called silence restriction, which is no communications of any kind. No eye contact, no hand movements. Um, you couldn't laugh if someone did something. If somebody dropped a plate next to me, for example, I couldn't pick it up for them. That's a form of communication. I was only allowed to talk to one person in my in my uh, commune, and that was my designated leader. And that was only if she specifically came to find me to talk to me, which would have happened probably two or three times, probably the entire time that I was on science restriction, which was eleven months. So quite a quite decent amount of time and especially I think as a 10 year old I don't know if it was the same for you but like time when you're a kid seems really slow or maybe is it just time in a cult <laughs> no no I, I think it's, it's a well-documented psychological phenomenon I think okay, okay great thanks thanks <laughs> thanks thanks for that brilliant not just me then but yeah so it felt long <laughs> put it that way it felt really long and yeah so I mean even and I think that was probably the closest I've ever come to really losing my mind you know I started to unravel and not only unravel I started to wonder whether or not 
And I'd had this rebellion in me my whole life of like something isn't right and something that they're doing to the unknowing that what they were doing to us wasn't right. And knowing that when we were being, you know, brutalized by the adults, that it wasn't okay. I knew that. But when I was on silence for that amount of time, I was like, is it only me? Everyone else seems to be able to toe the line, get involved. Everyone else seems to have accepted what's happening. And and if I do that, will I feel normal? Because I was losing it. So I, ha- I, I, almost, I almost lost my mind. And I think it's because of the fact that I was invisible. With, in a commune of 100 people, I was invisible for, you know, the best part of a year. So, so yeah, it's, um, and, and it's quite interesting to think that that is how you break people, isn't it? These, these devices of, uh, you know, torture, we could probably call them, are there to break people down. And it was working. Let's talk about your escape. Aha. How did you get out? Well, I really had this, I had this kind of idea of my escape. I really wanted to do it on my own terms. I, um, I knew that I was going. I knew that I was, that I was done and that I, that, that I had to get out. But I wanted it to be done on my terms. I wanted to leave when I was 16, when I was legally allowed to get a job. I wanted to have enough money that when I left, I wouldn't end up doing what a lot of the other girls ended up doing, which was going into sex work. And it's not surprising when you think of how we were raised and we were taught that our bodies were a transactional, (laughs) you know, a thing to be traded and we weren't educated. So of course that's, that was kind of the, the, the natural progression. And I knew that wasn't something that I could ever ever do and so I had this idea of wait till you're 16 but earn some money first and then do it on your own terms and I wanted it to be like I wanted to like leave on my own terms and 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 the thing that's interesting is people think oh you know why didn't you leave sooner and why don't you run away and all this kind of stuff you don't think like that when you're raised in a cult when you're completely like it, some kids did run away for sure but where did they end up you know they were either brought back to the group or they ended up in foster care and we were told that the system was the devil so you know it's really difficult to try and unlearn all the things that you've been told and you've been raised to believe that everyone outside is evil and there to get you so there's that kind of strange like I suppose paradoxical thought of being like I need to get out there but what is out there am I safe for it like just it's really hard to unpick what is true when pretty much everything that you've been told in your entire childhood is an absolute fabrication and I met this boy uh over the fence in our cult Kids used to come and mock you, basically. Yeah, so but, I mean, wouldn't you, though, think about it? Like, if I was those kids, imagine. So you'll be, you live in a little village somewhere outside of Leicestershire. Nothing happens there. Only 300 people live in this village. And out of those, 100 of them live inside a cult. And that cult is well known for being a sex cult. That's what we were in the papers for. Sex cult this, sex cult that. The village was wearing bananas, as you would. Like, it's like, oh, my God. God, who, who's moved in? I was like, there's nothing that quite brings the Zoopla ratings down like a cult in the neighborhood, that's for sure. And these kids, bored, come around after school. They would sit at the gates and we did have these big gates at the end of our, our commune and they would wait for us to come out. And every time I would go to a barn to like get something for dinner or whatever, they'd be like, oi, sex cult girl. And like, we were like, well, 
that's how we're known. That's what they see us at. And they would, you know, sit there smoking their weed and sniffing their glue and shouting sex cult girl at us. And it went on for a long time. And then one day I, I heard them hollering over the, over the gate and I thought, you know what, sod it. I went over and like climbed over, saw them in this little patch of green. And I was like, what? And they were terrified as they jumped out of their skin seeing me because they never thought that somebody would actually leave the cult and be like, what? Anyway, I made friends with one of the boys and his name is Rafa. Wonderful kid. I ever say like, you know, there's a few moments of real grace that I've had in my life. And Walter Schwartz would be one of them. And Rafa really was a, a moment of like grace. And he, you know, we, we, we became friends and he, he said to me, you know, we've, we've got to get you out of there. And I was like, I know I'm planning on getting out of there. And he was like, well, let's figure out a plan together. So he was somebody on the outside that was like, you need to get a job. You need to rent a house. You'll need to have about 600 quid to do that. You know, it's like literally plotting it together and putting a strategy as to like how I was going to get out. And bless him. He's such a sweetheart. He used to drive. He, he helped me get a job in a nightclub. You imagine I was underage from a cult getting in his car at like 10 o'clock at night after the cult's lights out, which was at night. Everyone's in bed. I'm climbing out the window, getting into his car, driving to a club called Mosquito Coast. I'm from a cult and now I'm behind a bar on a student night where I'm serving slippery nipples and B-52s and I have no idea what I'm doing. And luckily, the, the one big thing that was going for me was that I had an American accent so I could <laughs> play dumb. Like, I don't, know what a, I don't know what a slippery nipple is. You know, it, it was, it was, it's, I, I, I mean, obviously I was really responsible because I'd been working my whole life. So that side of it wasn't scary. But you know, when you're that age, you kind of think you're a little bit invincible, don't you? You think you're a little bit smarter than everyone else. And then you find out you're a proper dum-dum. And um, anyway, my I accidentally gave the guys who employed me, uh, I gave them the number of the home's phone, the cult's phone. And I'd meant to put Rafa's number down. It's such a stupid mistake. And then, as you well know, they rang my house. I got found out. It was really dramatic. It wasn't what I wanted. I was expecting to walk out of there held with my head held high. And instead, I got the whole home got together and they had a vote on whether or not I could stay or whether or not they should kick me out because I was going to now. I mean, like I, I did an excommunicable offense. I had a job. You're not supposed to do that. I was doing all of these things which are completely forbidden. They could not believe what I had done. It's like the, this is like the ultimate crime in a way. And, um, and they all voted um, that I should be kicked out because it was unanimous. Including um, parents. Including should. my parents. The best thing I can kind of liken it to is Big Brother as far as that kind of like voting mechanism, except for Davina McCall wasn't waiting at the gates for me to see me into the real world. But um, people kind of like often ask me like, oh, how upset were you at the time? I wasn't. I was completely shut down at that point. I wasn't, I think I just flipped into survival mode. I wasn't upset with them. I, was, I don't even know how, I mean, I was angry with my parents, but I just went into complete shut down from that group. And I think it was really only years later that I started to actually unpick what that meant, what that night meant. For me, from my actual kind of sense of self and 
psyche and all the rest of it to be completely abandoned by your community and shunned and kicked out by your community no matter how much you want to leave and you know hate your environment it still had such a profound effect on me but yeah so unfortunately for me I didn't get the big empowered head held high did it on my own two feet experience I was um, I was booted out because I got caught where did you go? Did you ever see Rafa again? Oof. I, you know what? I didn't see Rafa again. I think because I'd shut down so much from the group, I just shut down completely. I, um, I just was, I, and I also had this horrible sense of shame and guilt around being caught and about what I'd gotten him into. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but to have that, I just felt awful and I didn't want him to feel like he needed to protect me and I thought that I was an adult and I look back at it now and I was 15 15 years old I was a child I didn't know what I was doing but yeah I didn't I didn't see him again but um but you know I do definitely owe him a thank you what's your relationship like with your parents now I think my mental health is that good to the point where I know who I should and shouldn't have in my life. I know that I should have people in my life who nourish me and encourage me and support me. And I have that. And I will always be grateful to my parents for my brothers and sisters. And I would never put a child through what I went through ever, but I wouldn't give up my childhood if it meant that I would lose any one of my siblings. No way. And they're amazing. And that's my family. And we're like, we're like the Waltons with that tight. It's actually ridiculous. We love each other so much. There's eight of us that live in London and we are so close. It's unfathomable. And my parents just don't fit into that. And I think my mom and dad made a choice, really. They made a choice before we were born about what was important to them. And it was always the group first. And it's still the group now, you know. So they decided, I believe, and I'm kind of saying this off the cuff now as I think about it, so it might go wrong. They decided that within being in that group, that the family unit wasn't as important to them as the group was. And the repercussions of that has meant that they don't have a family unit now. They have each other, they have the group, but they don't have any of us. And we are our own separate entity Do you think they feel culpable for what they did to all of you? It's difficult to know with people that are still practicing in being in a religious community, whether what they're saying is what they think or whether it is what they is part of the collective identity. And with my parents, I still struggle to know what is coming from them and what is coming from them. Does that make sense? You know, Handmaid's Tale, Under His Eye, all of that stuff. It's very difficult to separate individual from collective. And so my parents have said to me that they're sorry, but they've never come out, say, for example, publicly. Because the thing is, this is what I was saying earlier when we said, you know, what's more complicated about my parents being the public face of a group like this and how it makes it more difficult for me is there's a difference between me forgiving my parents for what they've done to me as an individual that is something that we can understand how do you forgive somebody for something that hasn't been done to you my parents publicly protected a group that abused children that is something that I think is not for me to forgive really is it and my parents have never 
they issued many public statements on behalf of the children of God saying that they are, you know, a missionary group and this, that, and the other. They've never once issued a public statement recounting anything that they said in the press before. They've never held themselves accountable. They've never said, we're sorry, we messed up. I think a public apology, not for me. This isn't about me. This is way bigger than me. This is about a generation of kids that slipped under the radar from the authorities and that were, I mean, there are thousands of us. And my story is actually, for someone who grew up in the children of God, not that bad. They're a way, way worse. And a lot of us kids didn't make it. The suicide rates are very high and it's not surprising when you think about what was done to the kids in that group. And my parents have never come out and publicly apologized for protecting the group and not protecting the children. So for me, that's that's outside of me. It's a bigger story. It's bigger than, than my brothers and sisters. So I think for them, that would be a really good place for them to start. Lexi, thank you so much for sharing your story on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This week's episode starred Bexy Cameron and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. The editor was John Doughty. Next week, we have the exact opposite episode for you. It's mathematician Marcus de Sotoy and psychologist Stephen Pinker investigating the tools of rationality. Until then, stay well and thanks for listening. <laughs>